Hello and welcome to the Double Pivot, the world's most agreeable soccer analytics podcast. I am Michael Cayley. We are back. League football is back. And the problem is I kind of feel like we've talked about all the Premier League topics. Like we did our Aston Villa pod like a couple weeks ago. They're still kind of the same team. They're pretty good, but they're not great. They're kind of running hot. We did, we did our United pod and, you know, we could talk about how they had a really hot game and a bunch of shots didn't get scored against them, but like, whatever, then we know where they are. Like, we've sort of covered all of these teams and I have been feeling a little bit like, you know, patting myself, patting ourselves on the back, patting you on the back for being this kind of fan. It's been a season where if you've been tracking the underlying numbers, most of the things that are happening don't surprise you. Hey, look, Spurs sl- slow down. Hey, look, Chelsea have pushed back a little bit. You know, it's all the things you'd expect. The top of the table is Arsenal and Liverpool and City. Sure, sure. I don't have a lot to add to that right now. And so what we were thinking was twofold. First off, we got a topic for today. We're going to talk about the bottom of the table. We haven't talked about that before. You know, if you look at the underlying stats, they really suck. But we can put some data on that and, and, and talk about it and, you know, contextualize them and look at these individual teams. And Mike can talk about Everton. Everyone loves that. But what we're going to do is for our subscriber side podcasts over the next month, unless things come up that we got to talk about, but we're going to look at more in depth at some of the top teams in the Premier League, not in terms of how good they are and how how competitive they are for top four. I think we all kind of know what's going on there, but in terms of what they are. So a bunch of these teams are, even if they do not necessarily play the most thrilling football, they are trying to be quite distinct things tactically with quite interesting selections of players and locations on the field that they play and roles that they have and all those sorts of things. So at patreon.com slash pivot over the next few weeks, we're going to be going through these teams in some more depth to sort of describe what we're seeing while, you know, we put like a value on it. That is where we are. I am joined by Mike Goodman. We got a podcast where he's going to talk about Everton. We got a podcast where I talk about the very bottom of the table. He is jazzed. How's it going, Mike? Music you heard on the way in as well. Please download, subscribe, make us happy as podcasters. Patreon.com slash double pivot. You've heard we've got a Discord with Grace Robertson. It's great. We are um, going to start making an effort over the coming weeks as well to start featuring, featuring some of you who say smart things in the Discord all the time, sometimes even about soccer. To, like, grab some of those comments and give them a little bit of a wider airing. So, you know, look for that as well. It is weird, because we're going to talk about Everton, who have had a 10-point points deduction and now sit joint bottom of the Premier League table. And I'm fine? Like, I've done some, like, I'm very angry about Everton. I've seared in my head the first time we did Deep Blue Something, and I screamed about how I did not like the film, and I did not want to remember it, and I just wanted to be put it out of my misery and to have it all stop. And, like, I don't know, I enjoy watching Everton play. They're kind of an average Premier League team. I think they will be absolutely fine. Now... Part of the reason that they're going to be absolutely fine, in my opinion, is that we're talking about, like, it's really hard, even as an average Premier League team, to fade a 10-point deduction and possibly be absolutely fine. But the bottom of the Premier League table is so bad this season. Like, so epically, tremendously bad. I don't really, like, we're going to try to contextualize it, I guess. But, like, it is... 
bonkers how bad this set of newly promoted teams is. So I, I, I went back in the data and just sort of collected like first 13 matches of the season who are the worst teams over 13 matches. And number one with a bullet is this season's Sheffield United. Sheffield United are a point ahead of Everton. Sheffield United are right now at minus 1.4 expected goal difference per match. You know, no one else has been worse than minus 1.3. I think we're just going to, like, move on from Sheffield United. This is (laughs) truly, truly a historically bad team. And, I mean, when we talked about that before the season, it was like, so this team had to had to sell some of their better players and didn't replace them upon getting promoted. Like, what else did you think was going to happen here? Yeah. I mean, so I think one thing that I want to emphasize, early in the season, really from preseason, we talked about how the bottom of the Premier League table was going to be worse than it had been in previous years because for... Various and sundry, fairly fluky reasons. The teams that were relegated last year were not the worst teams in the Premier League. So you had those bad teams hanging around, and you had these new team promoted teams. Our case for the bottom of the Premier League being bad did not rest, really, on the newly promoted teams being very, 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 very bad. Like It rested on them being like average bad, but combined with like, two to three other average relegation, like, newly promoted level teams, so that you had five or six teams that were bottom three caliber or quality. As it turns out, that may be the case for the teams that hung around, but the newly promoted teams are so bad. And I mean, Chef, like... The 20th best team in the Premier League is terrible for the 20th best team. The 19th best team in the Premier League is only somewhat comparatively not as bad for the 19th best Premier League team. And, like, maybe as you get up towards 18th and Burnley, like, you're like, oh, you're just, like, somewhat worse than normal bad for 18th. And, like, they are a level below the badness of the Premier League that we were sort of anticipating early on in the season, I think. Yeah, the, the worst team through uh, through 13 games by expected goal difference last season was Nottingham Forest with a minus 0.75 expected goal difference match. Burnley is worse than that. So the last season, the worst expected goal difference in the Premier League would have been 17th this season, you you go down further. Twenty twenty one, it was it was Newcastle. If you remember how bad they started out that season before, like turning things around with the Saudi money, like they. But they were also not nearly as bad. They weren't even as bad that that season as Fulham have been through thirteen matches, through twelve matches. Like the bottom of the table. If if Burnley were the worst team in the Premier League, they would be a somewhat unusually bad worst team in the Premier League. About average for worst team in the Premier League, but worse than usual. 
And there are two teams significantly worse than them instead. So that's what you're looking at. Like, usually the 20th best team in the Premier League is about as good as Burnley. And this season, they're, and then sometimes the 20th best team is worse, but like then they're just like really down there at the bottom. What we have is a, a, a traditionally 20th best team with two like 21st and 22nd best teams behind them. And that is going to screw up the table and the process of this season. And the, the, the thing, right, you, you mentioned Fulham there briefly, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it would not be super abnormal for them to be the worst team by XG in the Premier League right now with their numbers. But they are so far ahead of these three that, like, I mean, there's, like, table anomaly stuff going on with them, with them right now. But, like, this is just – this is the reason that, like – Bournemouth should have hope that Everton should feel fine that there really like should not be a, a Premier League relegation battle come April particularly. Yeah, one one thing I, I sort of put together here were uh, this list of of, of the worst uh, teams through thirteen matches in the Premier League, and if you look at the list of the worst fifteen, the fifteenth is Nottingham Forest last season who managed to survive, you know, by the skin of their teeth. And then above them, you know, you have all teams that were relegated. You have either the you have the three worst teams last th- this season. So those teams are already three of the 15 worst sides by non-penalty expected goal difference that I have since the 2010-2011 season. So 14 14 seasons these are three of the worst 15 teams through this, this stretch of games. The other teams were all relegated with two exceptions. So you've got West Brom from 2020. Remember that team that sa- that was like the, the team that Sam Allardyce couldn't even save. He got them up to playing a much more respectable level of football, but the level was all to start was so low. The performances were so poor. They, they fell off. There, there's Reading. I don't know. I have a special place in my heart for Reading. Possibly, like, you know, some number of you remember when I was a blogger at the Cartilage Free Captain website, and I was doing my first XG tables, and I'd post them and with little bits of commentary, and at the end of every every commentary, I'd write, and Reading are terrible? Well, look here. I have them through the first 13 matches of the season. They were just a little bit worse than negative one XG per match. Sixth worst on my list. You got the Hull and Sunderland relegated teams in 2016. I don't remember too much about that. Mike, you can pop in here if you ever remember anything about the, about any of these teams. I really I, Sunderland. I do because it's David Moyes, and, and yeah, that, that, that was the Sunder. That was the full Sunderland vortex year. Like we we correct. we podcasted about them. This is how old this podcast is. That, that is the yeah <laughs> yeah. This is true. Um, yeah, we talked that that David Moyes team when Sunderland finally and inevitably fell apart uh, utterly was just like. I, you, know, you go back, it was Jack, De- Jack Rodwell was the guy they brought in to hopefully be their savior. Like it was, it was, it was an ugly situation. Uh, but like all of these teams in their own ways were extremely ugly situations, including the two that randomly survived. 
Well, you got Nottingham Forest, but the the, oh, the yeah. ones that survive. I mean, they've got some older teams. I don't remember Bob Bolton and Wolves from 2011, 2012. Poor Bolton. To, to be fair, poor Bolton. Bolton, like the year before, had gotten up into like the top seven or eight with a midfield that included um, Fabrice Mwamba, who then had a heart attack on the field, although he survived, and and Stu Holden, who was like underrated as like an American soccer playing prospect whose knee promptly exploded twice. <laughs> like, And then that's like the end of the club. And then Bolton were vaporized. You, you got you got the yeah you got Cardiff yeah so just like and, and you got one of, one of those uh, bounce one of those the 2021-2022 Norwich team terrible teams really bad teams the two though and they are actually second and third worst non penalty expected goal difference per match are Burnley in 2016-2017 the year they came up and barely survived and 2018-2019 one of the other seasons when they were pretty bad but survived and. I kind of feel like because Daesh has gone and done a bunch of things, the like really early Daesh wizardry isn't remembered in the same way. Like those were crazy. They gave up so many shots. Those teams were insane. And I think that like back back when I was at uh, Statsbomb, uh, I like tried to look into this and I don't know. Tom Heaton stopped a lot of shots. Like that was that was what happened, and I, I I still don't know that there's much more to it than that. But Tom Heaton sure stopped a lot of shots. Yeah, I I I, I have always been like curious about the hypothesis that Sh- Sean Dice just like got some really really good keepers. Yeah, like one of those one of those periods where they were really quite bad was when they had Joe Hart in goal. That is correct. And what? Well, because what happened, right, is that Heaton gets hurt and Nick Pope comes in. And everybody's like, see, it's not the keeper. But then it turns out, like, Nick Pope's really good. Right. And now Nick Pope is a, is a Champions League goalkeeper and no one, no one thinks twice about it. Right. And Joe Hart is Tottenham's third keeper. Is that right? He's with Celtic now. He's also in the Champions League. So who's to say what's good and what's bad? <laughs> that is true. Right. He's, yes. Just like sort of to bring it into into this season, the thing that I think is like kind of interesting is that is not at all what the story of Sean Dyche at Everton has been. No. Like Sean Dyche, when he first came through at Burnley, the story was that this guy is some sort of weird XG wizard, and maybe he packs lots of extra bodies in the box to make blocking shots more common. There's some evidence for that. It's hard to sort of piece together. They were maybe very efficient counterattacking with a few, like, styles of play or, like, two guys up top. I don't really know. None of those theories ever fully came together. But the fact that he did keep up two teams, which had truly historically bad XG and, like, incredibly tiny payrolls, like, lots of not very good players. Like, it is, it's an, it's impressive. It's surprising. It's weird. It's something. It's not what he's doing at Everton. So I think one thing that's really interesting about Sean Dyche is that you see these two teams on this list, and then you do not see Burnley under Sean Dyche on here again. Yep. Two of his first three years in the Premier League, and then you don't see it again. And so what it says to me is that this team had no money, and he somehow skated by early, early on. And the what ends up happening is that like that team gets better. And I think we do see later on, especially like the Ashley Barnes, Chris Wood tandem, 
up top for them when, like, for a couple of years, they were actually, like, a really good strike partnership. The seeds of, like, what would Sean Dyche do if, you know, he had a little bit more resources? And he doesn't really have more resources at Everton right now. What he has is the legacy of resources. So he came into a club that had more talent than any club he had at Burnley. And to some degree, they're going to be just stripping this club for parts for a few years to, like, hopefully have enough to get them through to being owned by not scam artists. I don't know. I mean, until the until the until the stadium, while not profitable, is no longer a money hole. And like what he's done, as we've talked about a bunch on this podcast, is still totally issue possession. But really, like, build a side that's built to get goals and keep doing it. And, and like, a Premier League average level, and I just, like, I cannot, like, look, obviously there's a world where terrible bounces happen for two more months and I'll be freaking out. But, like, until those terrible bounces happen, I just cannot make myself be concerned about this team. Yeah, and it's also interesting, like, one of the things that those Dyche Burnley teams did over time as they got better, as they got up from these are terrible teams that are somehow staying up to these are competent lower table teams. One thing is that they started doing more, they started to have more possession, not because they wanted to have more settled possession, but because they started engaging higher up the field defensively. And they always had the capacity when they needed to push for a goal to engage higher up the field defensively, just press to look for turnovers. It's clearly something that Dice wanted that team to do. And that is what this Everton team does best right now, I think. And it, it does make them a little bit fragile because they really are pushing a lot of guys up the field to try to take the ball. But in the United game, which you know they lost, but you know, come on, I watched the game. They created a bunch of good chances in the first half off of that press. McNeil and Harrison and Decore and Calvert Lewin is a very good pressing front line, and then you've got some you've got some combination of Onana, Garner, and Ghana up there in, in, in midfield. So, uh, so supplementing that press or 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 trying to to con- contain anything that breaks through it and like they get a lot of chances by winning the ball up high and they take those risks and they give up chances but the balance of it continues to be very good and it's not terribly surprising with the talent that they have that it is it's just yeah it's 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 good soccer it is like high pressing closing down more front foot soccer than you think of as Sean Dyche soccer, while not at all being possession style. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's what's really interesting. It's just like pretty much every team that plays an aggressive, pressing, defensive style at some phase, at some phase, wants possession. Like, if you look at, like, even if you look at the classic quote-unquote heavy metal Klopp teams from, you know, his his time at Dortmund into the beginning of his time at Liverpool, the first few years at Liverpool, those teams, yes, they wanted to counter-press to win the ball back and create, you know, attacking situations quickly, but if they won the ball in their own half... They wanted to move the ball up the field quickly, but by possessing it, they wanted to interchange and pass and move through you to get up into the final third. 
Whereas like, like, you know, or as were Pep Guardiola's teams that pressed and counterpressed very aggressively. It was always to win the ball back and then keep the ball and then control the ball. Sean Deitch wants to win the ball up the field to create shots. When he wins the ball in the middle field or defensive third, the ball goes up the field immediately to get up the field to get shots. Like, there is no phase where keep the ball to get better shots is, like, you know, part of the thing. And, like, usually what's interesting here is that when... Your strategy is win the ball deep and move it up the field long and fast. It's instead of getting bodies up the field. That is just simply not the case with Everton. They are happy for Harrison and McNeil and DeCore and one or both of whoever the two base midfielders are to get involved in the play. Or, like, uh, you know... Or the fullbacks as well, for that matter. Like, those guys will all, in their moments, get up the field. It's just, they don't want to move the ball up the field by having the ball. They want to kick it long to Calvert-Lewin and let him get fouled. What it's reminiscent of more than the counter-pressing styles they were talking about, all of which had, like, pretty serious possession structure of some sort in them, this is more like sort of a gold-plated with a side of caviar lump and squish. A hundred percent. Like, these are much, much better players than usually play that style, which is associated with, like, League One championship kind of football. These are players who can really pass to a significant degree, playing a style that involves getting into tight situations high up the pitch and hoping something goes right. Well, look, there is a real difference here in that, like... Lump and squish kind of classically is you lump the ball up the field and not like to a target man, but to literally lose possession to then go press, right? Yeah. Whereas this is like part of the reason it's so important for Calvert-Lewin to be on the field is that it is a very specific deal where like if the opponent moves into the attacking third, the wings drop back outside the fullbacks to create like a legitimate back six. And then you have the three midfielders harrying in front of the back six. And so there's only Calvert-Lewin up front. But again, most good teams would react to that by saying, okay, then when we win possession, we'll exchange short passes to give our players time to get forward. And Everton respond to that by saying, we're still just going to lump the ball to Calvert-Lewin and we want to retain possession, but we basically want him to retain it against the center backs to create the time for everybody to run up the field. And it's like, it's not novel or revolutionary or anything, but it is extremely rare as a style to see in the current game. Yeah, it makes use of particular skills that Calvert-Lewin has, and Beto has, I thought, looked pretty good at that kind of holdup and that kind of running, such that they can continue to play something like this style with him. Well, he's huge. <laughs> he's very large, and and he's like, you know, fast, and he's got a real motor. Like, those are, that you can do a lot with that. Yes. And, you know, could Everton keep having games like United happen? Like, yes. And if you, if Everton had 14 points right now, we wouldn't be talking about them in this podcast at all. Right. I mean, it'd be a 14 points. Like, they're, they're, they're too good to have 14 points. 
And so, like, we wouldn't be discussing them any more than we would be discussing Crystal Palace. They have a, they have a points deduction, so certainly, you know, a bunch of bounces could go wrong. They've got to make up five points on Luton Town. Not easy to do. We'll see if they can do it. But the odds are really that they will, and I'm very skeptical that this team is going to get a lot worse. I guess they get injuries. Football's horrible. Other than that, like, it's just, are they not going to get a bunch of the bounces? And is someone at the bottom going to get a bunch of the bounces? Because the, the difference in quality is so large. Just, I mean, that's, Matt, like, that's the thing, is that it's massive. Yeah, and, and like, the the one team at the bottom that has gotten some points is Luton Town. Like, if we're talking about what these teams should do, you look at them and you say, okay, they're at nine points. They they, they just have to maintain a, a five-point lead on one of their competitors, and they will be okay. But it is not clear to me, like, what you would do with this Luton Town team to really feel good about accomplishing that. It's just, like, a really bad team that is trying to keep the ball but has the worst passing possession, passing percentage, and fewest passes completed in the Premier League while trying to play a possession style a lot of the time. Like, it's just such a bad team, and I guess one way into that would be, like, sure, go sign literally anyone if you can get, like, a good Premier League player on a contract— I can kind of talk myself into that. You go and get anyone. This is a team that didn't make themselves worse signing Ross Barkley and Andros Townsend. What if they signed someone who's good at, again, any position on the field whatsoever? Yeah, Alfie Doughty. Alfie Doughty does a fair amount of ball progression at fullback. He's kind of interesting. Any, pretty much any position other than Alfie Doughty's, like, go get someone. And... It probably won't make your team worse for next season to have taken that shot. But like, these are, these are small edges. It's it just like, be, when you have this little talent, you have room to maybe take one shot. Part of the problem here is that when teams are like this bad, like this bad, everything is bad. Like, there is not a thing that you can look at and be like, if they tried to do this or if they tried to do that. Like, maybe they would improve. Like, th- there's no, like, change the manager and play a different style, really, here. Like, mm-hmm. these teams are just dreadful. And you're right. Like, go out, sign a Premier League caliber player or three, and, like, you will obviously get better because you are a bad team. But, like, you have to get so much better. Because that's the other thing here. You're right that Luton is one of the few teams, like, down here that have gotten any points. They have nine points. But, like, Nottingham Forest spent last the first half of last season magically getting points. So that we could sit here and tell you they were terrible. And you look at the table, or you look at Fulham this year in 15th with 13 points. Like, when the inevitable happens, or for Fulham, never, ever, ever ever, ever happens, uh, like, they have this, like, it's like a race against time, right? Where it's like, the mm-hmm. points stop coming, but you have this buffer. Like, Luton is 
five points clear. That's not a lot. Like, it's not, like, none of these teams have, like, miraculously gotten the kinds of bounces that might insulate you from being really bad, let alone how terrible, like, historically bad. Yeah. Whereas Burnley, who, again, are not historically bad. Right. Are bad, not historically bad in a legitimately interesting way. Yeah. Unlike Luton Town, who are trying to play some amount of possession football, have some structure, and simply cannot. Burnley are average in the Premier League in possession. They they are able to have and keep the ball for long stretches, and their opponents, you know, have and keep the ball about a similar amounts, which is like legitimately interesting. And what they don't have, it seems pretty obvious, is anyone who is dangerous around the penalty area whatsoever. Yeah. And this, like, when we're talking about this team coming into the season, we're kind of like, oh, Amdouni is a, is a kind of interesting, like, forward-ish type. Okay. But they didn't get anyone else. No one else on this team is a player who has any history of being particularly good around the penalty area. And so, like, if this Burnley team had lucked into a bunch of points, if they had done what Nottingham Forest did last season, they'd be like one of the easiest teams in the league to say, just jam a championship striker on top of this team and get some more points. I think they could be legitimately, like, not good, but probably not 20th place bad if they just put a striker on to- at, at, at the top of this team and, and they could sometimes kick it up to him and he could sometimes take shots. But they're so far down, they've lost so many games in a row, I'm not sure whether the the economics of it makes sense. It would it would depend, you'd have to get like a, a good deal, a player didn't have a relegation clause, things like that, maybe you could pull it off, but I'm just not sure it makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, they have Jay Rodriguez appearing in eight games. Jay Rodriguez, who you might most recently remember from Sean Deitch's Burnley, and who, like, you might remember from Sean Deitch's Burnley as being old and recovering from knee surgery from the time that he was good on Southampton. Yeah, and they're playing him because they don't have other options, and I just do not understand what went into imagining that this squad was Premier League ready. I don't know. I mean, maybe like, – like, I have this theory that maybe they looked at the like the three teams that survived last year. And we're like, see, we can just do that. Except that all three of these teams were worse than those three teams. I mean, there is a world like where like you could have looked at the analysis the same way we did and said the Premier League bottom is going to be quite bad this year. We don't need to be as forceful in improving our teams as we might in an average season. And like, and, and like miscalculate too much. Yeah, I will say, like. If you flipped Burton, uh, if you flipped Burnley and Luton's points, I would be a little bit more concerned as an Everton supporter than I am right now. Like of of these teams, Burnley is the one, as you were saying, that is like closest to not god awful to the point where you can see a, a plan to make them a seventeenth best team in the Premier League. Like these other, like Luton and Sheffield, like we've barely talked about Sheffield because there is nothing to say. There's nothing to say. Chris Archer's 
maybe a Premier League caliber striker. <laughs> maybe. He's at like 0.1 XG per 90. 0.1. I know. It's so sad. There are, like, I talk a lot about the idea that, like, if you're a good striker, the fact that the team can't get you the ball is not an excuse. Like, the way you find good strikers is that they get their shots and even if not their goals, even on bad teams. Sheffield is so bad, Sheffield United, that I am, like, (laughs) tempted to make an exception to my rule here a little bit and be like, he might be, like, a Premier League average striker. Maybe. (laughs) But that's, all I got. This is why, like, the story here is much more interesting at one level of remove than in itself, because the story in itself, the vast majority of it, is will the bounces not go Everton's way and will the bounces go someone else's way? Because they're just so much better than the other teams that they're competing with. And this is also why we're not really talking about Bournemouth and Fulham here. Fulham, who did manage to pick up a few points early in the year, but have had a few bounces go against them, actually, recently, and are now falling down to a much more reasonable place for where they should be as well. But Fulham can have easily the worst summer of any of the teams that stayed in the Premier League and be solidly favored because, one, they got a few bounces that did go their way, and two, these other teams are just so bad. And Bournemouth, they they they've run off two good games now? I don't have anything to say about it yet. And, like, it's I, it's not one of those things where, like, I was saying that uh, Iriola should should start some other players and he made some changes. It looks like it's the same team just playing better and not making mistakes in early possession. Maybe he's trained them up. I don't know. Maybe they got to play Sheffield. And uh, Newcastle is the weird one, right? But, like, they played against yep. Newcastle, but that was still the weird one. But one thing about Bournemouth is that I believe they had the hardest strength of schedule to start the season. Mm-hmm. Yep. Them being somewhat less bad than they appeared to be is not necessarily going to be shocking. At the same time, like, you only feel good about them because of how bad the three relegated teams are, right? And, 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 and in a normal year, this is, this is like, if they were to survive this year, they should not feel that in and of itself, even comfortably, that that even of itself, in and of itself, means they are headed in the right direction. <laughs> right. We, we, we expect it to be a better than average group of promoted teams coming up. So these teams that get a respite this season, probably Fulham and Bournemouth, quite possibly Everton. Nottingham Forest. Forest, Wolves. And, and some of these Forest and Wolves seem to have made made some real improvements. There, yep. There's something they're, they're working on there, but they should not take this as they are solidly in the Premier League. This is a weird season where a bunch of teams are going to get a mulligan for poor squad management, and Everton may get a mulligan for poor financial management, but. Next season, it's going to get hard again. I don't think that we have any reason to think of this as a trend in the Premier League. If anything, this goes against the trend. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, Leicester looked like they're, I mean, they were too talented to get relegated and they look like they're going to bounce right back. Uh, Leeds is in the discussion. Southampton's in the discussion. Ipswich, after last year, is in the discussion. Um, All of whom I think are significantly better than these bottom three teams. One thing I think that, like, all of these teams, Fulham, Bournemouth, Everton, Norwich, 
wolves. And I think you're seeing it with Everton and wolves in particular. Maybe Bournemouth too as well. It's hard to say. Maybe Norwich. When you get a year like this, like you can clear. This is how you clear the vortex, right? Yep. This is how you take a year and you say, we're going to lay a foundation so that we are not like a struggling, scrambling mess. Can you do that? Like, Wolves seem like they've really done that, to be honest. Gary O'Neill seems like, oh, right, actually, they just got a good manager. And 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 their talent level is not great, but it's okay. Uh, Norwich maybe have done this. Uh, no, Norwich, Nottingham Forest maybe have done this. I'm less sure about, like, Fulham. I think Bournemouth, the, the, the jury is still kind of out. I think Bournemouth, to their credit, last year recognized that they had to do this, but it's unclear whether they, they, they're, like, in the process of executing the plan. Um, but, like, you don't get this opportunity very often if you're a not very good team. All right. So we will be back later this week with more podcasts. We're going to be looking at – so who, who are the teams that we think are interesting to talk about here? Because to me, the list is basically Arsenal, Liverpool, Spurs, Chelsea – is there someone you'd add to it? And City. Like, we need to, like, like you need to talk about City sort of in some ways as the catalyst. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that what they're doing right now is, is like, tactically interesting. Like, correct. City are the context in which all of these other teams are functioning in a certain way. Right. More than they themselves are something I really want to get deep into discussing. Right. No, I, I think that that's absolutely right. Like, I think in some ways they set off. The, the, the chain of dominoes, even as they are not themselves. But part of it is that they are not themselves doing anything interesting because we've talked to death what they are doing, like, the back half of last year. And it's the same. Yeah. And Pep seems to be happy with that, exactly. Right. All right, so that, that's something to that be able to look for at patreon.com slash double pivot. And wanted to pull up one comment from the Discord, as Mike said. So this is from Camilo in the podcast discussion channel, said, just finished listening to the pod on Roma Abramovich's totally normal and legal tra- transitions. I think he means transactions. Something that the mics didn't touch on, but I believe might have been going on. But this might border on conspiracy theory, given they don't have any proof. To be fair, in that podcast, <laughs> I said a lot of things that bordered on conspiracy theory that I didn't really have any proof for. I tried to couch them like you do. Exactly. We, we were giving context and theories, you know, the serious words that people use for that sort of thing. It probably also worked as a way of establishing relationships with people that lack some scruples. Soccer is already filled with agents and people who are willing to do some semi-shady stuff to make money and whose bank accounts got flows of millions and can transfer a lot of capital in the West with plausible stories. These seem like prime candidates for the Russian state and oligarchs to get to know, maybe even use. For example, if I started to get flows of millions of dollars, the bank would have all kinds of questions I couldn't answer. Or if a Russian national with no history of banking in the West, it might raise some flags. But if, for example, Conte's agent, or anyone else like this, opened up a bank account and used it for new business that netted millions, eh, it's probably something he does and can explain from some soccer sale. From their perspective, it's nothing that different from getting around FFP, probably has the backing of Russian government, so it can't be that illegal. Yes. That all seems very smart to me. 
Yeah, and another way that like the sort of unregulated Wild West capitalism of soccer is very, very useful for authoritarian states, for leaders who, you know, political and business leaders who want to move some money around that they've acquired in somewhat dubious ways, or they want to preserve from a state that they're worried about. Like, all of these things, like, because soccer is such an unregulated landscape, it is then very useful in precisely the ways I think Camilo's comment lays out. Alrighty, there we go. And on that note, we'll be back later this week with more podcasts. Cheers, y'all. Cheers. Cheers.